I, I recognize applause. Oh, thank you that they remember. <laughs> Would you turn with me, please, to John chapter 11? We have a rather lengthy portion to read, but, and we're going to deal with uh, primarily verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. But I think it's so important for us to see this whole passage because we'll be drawing from several things in the passage. We do welcome you if you're uh, visiting with us, and uh, if you haven't filled out one of these guest cards, we'd be glad for you to do so and leave this information. You can just leave it in the pew there if you want, and uh, we'll pick it up if you'd like for us to get in touch with you further. In the uh, pew Bible, if you want to follow along, if you don't have your own Bible, it's page 897, 897. Now, this is the uh, climax of all of the great signs of Christ, the great miracles. And as we're going to see, it's uh, bunched up right against his death. And so it's tied very closely with the death of Christ and his own resurrection. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. 
When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O risen Christ, you have given this word through your Holy Spirit, through your apostles, the men gifted by you to speak your word, to convey the truth of Christ to us, even now, 2,000 years later. And Lord, you superintend this word and you take this word as the living one and you apply it to our hearts by the Spirit so that our lives may manifest your life once more, so that this word may take root in our lives. And by it and by your Spirit, Lord, we become more like you. We believe in this Christ set forth. We find Him indeed to be the resurrection and the life. Oh Lord, bless us. Bless us, Lord, as we come to You and trust You. Amen. In the communicants class, the class that we have for uh, children that are preparing to take communion or to publicly profess their faith in Christ and begin to take the Lord's Supper, one of the first studies talks about signs. In fact, one of the exercises that I give the kids at the bottom of the page is to have your mom or dad write or, or draw several road signs and then you tell what that sign indicates to get the picture of what a sign is so that Baptism is a sign. It points to realities of God's salvation. And the Lord's Supper is a sign that points to glorious realities that are ours in Christ Jesus. Well, that word sign 
is used constantly in John. He, he, in a sense, builds his whole gospel around the idea of signs. In the very first miracle, we are fairly familiar with the water being changed to wine. He called it the first of his signs. And throughout the course of John, the discussion of the signs of Christ goes abuzz over and over. His own followers discuss his signs. The crowds discuss his signs. His enemies discuss his signs. And at one point, John says, even with all of these signs, they still were not believing in him. And then in the climactic statement of the gospel, John says, if we included all of his signs, it would fill volumes. But I've included these signs so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have eternal life. That's how prominent the idea of signs is in John. So, when we see this act of resurrection, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, we must all be thinking, this is a sign of other realities. He is imaging, he is picturing for us, Something of his salvation, something of what it means that he is Messiah, he is Christ, he is the Son of God, and something of what he will do for us. Now, not literally that every one of us now can expect that if you die, you're going to have a resurrection from the dead and you'll live a few more years like Lazarus did. You see, literally, that's not what's going to happen. But this is a picture of something he is going to do for his people that he does do for his people. And I'd like to point out three things that this is a picture of, uh, three things that this is a sign of. First, it's a sign that we are resurrected into the never-ending favor of God. This is one of the chief aspects of resurrection and life. It is a resurrection and life into the never-ending favor of God. Secondly, it is a resurrection and a life into a life that manifests the character of God. How glorious is that? A resurrection, a life in which we more and more manifest the very character of God right in the middle of our circumstances. And then finally, it is a sign of the grand final rich, uh, the final and full riches of God that will be brought to us at the final resurrection. So, resurrection in life, it's a resurrection into the favor of God, a resurrection into the very manifesting of the character of God, and finally, it will be a resurrection into the full riches of God. Now, first of all, let's talk about this resurrection into the favor of God. Already in this passage, even though it is about His raising Lazarus from the dead there are many indicators that he is about to die. So there's this strange juxtaposition, this strange putting together of his raising Lazarus and his dying. And there's a connection. The reason Lazarus and all of us will have life is because he dies. There's life only through his death. 
we see the overtones at the beginning when uh, even Thomas says, let's go die with him. Uh, we're going to die with Christ. Later, interestingly, at the end of this account, immediately the Jews plot to kill Jesus. In the next chapter, they're so undone with the fact that Lazarus is walking around, risen from the dead, they think, we're going to kill him too. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? We're going to just wipe out the evidence that he really did raise him from the dead by killing him. But in the very next chapter as well, Jesus speaks of, of glory again. You know, here he says he's going to manifest the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus. In the very next chapter, he says in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's that word glorify again. And this time he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A picture of his death as he is buried in the earth, it brings forth life and fruit for others. So here in chapter 11, he speaks of God will be glorified as I raise Lazarus from the dead. The very next chapter, now the ultimate glory, I will die and bring life. And we're to get the connection here that the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead is a picture for us that we have life through the death of Christ. And so we go back to chapter 1 where he says, John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Or John 3.16, The Father gave His Son in death so that we might have life. Life always comes through Christ's death. And so Jesus, ironically, who goes to death, awakes a dead man. And his life-giving work in chapter 11 becomes the occasion of his actually giving up his life in chapter 12. And so it is his death that brings us life. And what life does it bring us? Why a death to bring us life? Because it is a death, as he says, the Lamb of God who paid for our sins. He took away our sins. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So that all that separates me from God, that which would bring God's judgment and condemnation, that which would separate me forever from His favor. Now, as I trust in Christ, He takes that sin away. He is punished in my place. And therefore, I can be resurrected into the favor of God. I can be embraced by God. I can be the beloved of God. I can be, in other words of John, the child of God. I'm resurrected into the favor of God. And that's why Jesus said in John 6, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. But he, and he says, if you eat of this bread, you will live forever. But the bread that I give is my flesh. That's how you live it's because I die. And the central part of that must be then, you come into the favor of God because I die on your behalf and take away that which would turn God's favor from you. I win God's favor by my obedient life. I win God's favor by my death. I am the resurrection for those that were dead and condemned. Now they come into life. 
And that's why John 17, as Jesus prays, his high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you. You see, that speaks of favor, that they are intimate with you. You are intimate with them. There's nothing between you and them. Your favor is always upon them. You always do them good. You always smile upon them. Why? Because we're united to Jesus now. He is ever in the favor of God. Do you think Jesus is ever not in the favor of God? Do you think the Father ever looks with His Son with displeasure? No. Where are you if you're in Christ? Hidden in Christ. Joined to Christ. A brother of Christ. You have everything that Christ has. You're called a fellow heir with Christ. You even, it says, reign with Christ. It even says you will judge the angels in Christ. How much more can he say everything that he has as a resurrected man you will have because you're joined to him. You are in the favor of God. It's a favor that is abundant and rich and overflowing to give you the kingdom, to give you reign, to give you judgment even. It it makes us tremble. How can that be said of us? We see resurrection, resurrection into the favor of God. And it's not how good you are. Now, many of you have heard this, but I give you this again, and many of you haven't because you're visiting or newer to the church. But this may illustrate how you may feel about getting God's favor. When I was 11 or 12 in, in a classroom, we were asked, uh, if you could be anybody in history, who would you be? Now, you kids out there, 11 or 12, 10 or 11, 12 years old, how would you answer that question? If you could be anybody in history, who would it be? Or some of you adults, you think of that. Well, this little 11-year-old said, when it finally got to my turn, I said, um, I'd be the thief on the cross. And, of course, the teacher thought I had a psychological problem at that point. (laughs) Honey, why would you say such a thing? And I said, because God, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, I thought that at that time you tried to do as good as you could and you hoped when you finally stood before God, maybe you'd get to heaven, but you don't know. I mean, how can you know if you've done enough good things? How do you know how many, how does he weigh the bad? How does he weigh the good? Is the thumb a little down, the thumb a little up? How's, who could know that? I at least had sense enough to think, based on my system, you can't know till you get there. But one guy heard it. And I remember thinking, I don't care how much I'd have to suffer. I don't care if I was hanging on a cross. If I could hear, you're going to heaven. And what Jesus is saying, is that you can know you're going to heaven because I'm the resurrection and the life. I will grant you to be resurrected into the favor of God and His smile will be upon you because you will belong to me and I will have paid for your sin and my righteousness will be your cover and the Father will see you in me. And He wants to do that for you. The Father wants to do that for you. The Father wants you to be in Christ. He calls you and invites you to that. So you see, it's very different than what John F. Kennedy said when he said, 
ask not what your country can do for you, but what your country or what you can do for your country. God doesn't say, you don't ask what you can do for me. You ask, what can God do for me? How can he save me? How can he raise me? How can Jesus bring me into the favor of God? I can't do it myself. How glorious. He's the re- And it's as sure as he raised Lazarus. How amazing is that? Four days dead. He began to rot. You know, and one of the reasons Jesus waited to the fourth day was there is a folk tale about the folk idea that the spirit of a person hangs around till the third or fourth day to see if they can get back in the body. That's a pretty sad view of a spirit. Spirit's pretty stupid. I mean, I'd love to go off on that a while. You know, like you find on the third day, think, you know, this isn't looking very good. Um, <laughs> They actually say when they see the, the, the color change, they realize, oh, no, no more here, I'm moving on. Well, that's ridiculous. But the point is, in that situation, he showed that, I mean, you can be dead, 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 dead. You can be rotting, and I can raise you from the dead. You see, it doesn't matter. Our lives are like that corpse in many ways. Our works, our, our misdeeds, our sinfulness. It's terrible. But he raises us from the dead (laughs) into the favor of God. And I heard it so beautifully put by Don Welch in the hospital yesterday. And here's a practical application of it. Here's Don, life-threatening cancer. He's just begun chemotherapy this weekend. And he and Janet were blessed in the word last week of resting in Christ and manifesting the humility and love of Christ. And he said, you know, it struck me late this week that God is not... He said, I thought about that phrase of Paul, fighting the good fight. And he said, I realize God is not saying, let's see now, Don, what you're made of. But God is saying, I'm going to show you what I'm made of. See, that's grace. That's favor. You're not performing for Him. You're not, but you're resting in Him. It is His life. He doesn't say, you're the resurrection and life. He says, I'm the resurrection and life. Trust me. Trust me. And along these same lines, this declaration that He's the resurrection and the life means that we will manifest the character of God The life of Christ will be in us and we will manifest His character. In this gospel and later in John's short epistles, life is always associated with new character, particularly, as we've heard before, love. It is the new life of love, the resurrected life of Christ's love that showed itself on the cross, now being planted in our lives and now beginning to bear fruit in our lives. So that we become little images of this Christ. And His love begins to blend in and pour out of our lives. And there's a connection. We trust in His love. We become amazed at that love. We're in awe that He would die for us and take away our sins. And in the joy and relief and peace of this, coming to know this joy and enjoy this favor To know this love and enjoy His favor, it changes us. 
It always changes us. You can't taste His love without beginning to conform to that love. You begin to change into the character of God. And isn't that a sweet way to change your character? By winning your heart? By making you amazed at His love? You talk about going through all your barriers and all the defenses and and digging down and loving you. And that beginning to change you from the inside out. You cannot taste and enjoy His love without being transformed. Remember, and this is very familiar to us, where does our love for one another come from? Where does it come from? And you know the answer. We love because He first loved us. We experience His love, and His love transforms us. And so here there is a particular picture of resurrection brought into the painful difficulties of life. You see how they are suffering Lazarus is sick, then he dies, and resurrection comes into this situation. And I think it's a picture for us now. And the resurrection, it was about to happen. It was always in the making here. You might say that resurrection was on the move. In a physical way, yes, but remember, it's a sign for us of what we can expect, what we can enjoy in day-to-day life. And certainly it's a picture of future bodily resurrection. But it's a picture of how in the midst of our pain, His life comes to us. Things look worse and worse. He got sicker and sicker. More and more fear and finally He died. And then it was first day, second day, third day, fourth day, all hope gone. But resurrection was on the move. Resurrection was in the making. Resurrection was defining this. And so for us, He is never outmaneuvered. He is never outflanked. He has a plan for us. And spiritually, it means there is resurrection in our life. It means that His resurrected life will be the issue in yours and mine experience. And that means that the outer circumstance can be very different than the inner circumstance. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about the outer man dying, but the inner man being renewed. He talks about our dying while the life of Christ manifests itself. What is he talking about? He says, even as we're suffering, even as we're being persecuted, even as I've got another scar and another bone that's out of whack and has got arthritis because I was beaten and another year I'm in more and more pain and I'm just dying physically. But the life of Christ is manifesting itself. That's resurrection. That's life in the midst of death. Life in the midst of suffering. And so no matter what happens to you or me, there's no reason why you cannot live, not just to make it through, though sometimes that's all I can do. And sometimes I don't do that very well. But it means we have the potential of living the resurrected life of Christ in all of our circumstances. To manifest His love in all of our circumstances. The very life of Christ. So that as he says in verse 4, this illness, this death is for the glory of God. It's for the Son to be glorified. 
And so for each one of us, there is always that opportunity, whatever our circumstance, to bring glory to Christ, to manifest His life and His love, and to glorify God. But you see, in the midst of your pain and suffering, how many times does it say, first of all, he, him, he says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then it repeats that he loved them, verse 5. And that kind of prepares us for the fact that he stays two more days. Now, in the course of things, it's, it's very unlikely that he could have gotten there in time for him uh, to, be, to be there before he had died anyway. But it is interesting that he paused. He could have at least been there two days earlier, even if he'd been dead for two days could have been there to comfort them a little earlier. But in his wisdom and his love, he allowed things to go on for two more days. But this word later in verse 33 and verse 38, when it says he was troubled in spirit, it indicates anger every other time it's used. And it should be translated that way. He was troubled. He, he was greatly angered. And... The best interpretation of that is that he was angry over what sin had done to his friend. He was angry over the curse. He was angry over the whole world that was plunged into sin. And so we see the warrior going to the tomb to release his brother from that death. I say that because in the midst of your pain and your suffering, in the midst of your difficulty... You need to hear, He loves you. He is angry at what is happening and He one day will finally change it, just like He did with Lazarus. But if He pauses and allows it for the glory of God so that you have an opportunity to manifest His love in new ways, He will do it. That's what He's interested in. He's ultimately not interested in your comfort first. He wants you to manifest the love of Christ in a whole varied circumstance. And because it's fresh and because it's so real, I give you, again, an illustration from my brother Don. As he spoke of the sermon last week and resting in Christ, coming to Him and finding our rest and then manifesting His love and finding the rest and joy of that love, he said, it's been amazing in the hospital. And Janet has said the same. Because of that word, we've held on to that word. And we have been looking outside of ourselves to minister to other people. And God has constantly given us a rest and a joy. Even in the midst of their suffering. You see, by God's grace, there's not an implosion. But there is a stretching out to care for other people in the midst of the worst tragedy of their lives. That is resurrection. That's the resurrected life of Christ showing itself and looking a lot like Christ. Obviously, when he says in verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He talks about that final resurrection. We've already read about it. And then he says, whoever 
believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, there are two truths here, and let's just mention them before we close. That we are so connected to Christ, his life trumps everything, and it defines everything, so that if we die, the real life that we have of fellowship with God and enjoying his favor, untouched, untouched by death. It means nothing. Death's sting is removed, Paul says. And I remember tears streaming down my face when I heard of the hiding place. And when Corey Timboom's sister died and they read 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection and I thought of the horrible suffering that she endured under the hands of the Nazis and how finally they snuffed out her life and then they read... But this corruptible will put on incorruption. And I thought, no matter what they tried to do to her, they couldn't touch her. They couldn't touch her. Because she was with Jesus now. That life, though he dies, he lives. Right then he lives. Right in the midst of death, he lives because he is with Christ. He is continuing to enjoy Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Nothing. So we can mock death. That's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Ted, come, come on, come on. Where's your sting, dude? (laughs) You ain't got no sting. You ain't got nothing left. You can't touch us because we're alive in Christ. No matter what you do, no matter what the whole world does to snuff out our life, our life just blossoms in the presence of Christ. And all the more that our life is then perfected. The striving of your whole life to be like Jesus and then in that moment of death, you're made just like Jesus. And and all of our struggle to enjoy His favor and because of our unbelief and all of our weakness, we don't enjoy His favor like we should or could But in that day, we'll be thrilled with perfect happiness because we will enjoy His favor perfectly. We'll rejoice perfectly in His favor. And then there's still a waiting period until finally the resurrection itself occurs. And that's the big event in the New Testament. The physical, bodily resurrection. Because in all of this, you might think, well... You know, your body gets emaciated and killed. It could be persecuted and put to death. It could be burned. It could, anything could happen to it. Does it get lost in the shuffle? No way. Our bodies are united to Him in, even in the grave. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He revives our bodies. He makes them glorious like His own. You see, there's a difference in Lazarus' resurrection in Christ. Lazarus came forward in all of his clothes, Right? his grave clothes, and they had to take them off. Where did they find Jesus' grave clothes? Lying right there on the stone. He came out of them, just like he appeared in rooms. It was his glorified body. That's the body that we will have in the final day. And not only will our bodies be renewed, but all of creation. All of creation. So this picture of Lazarus is a tiny little snapshot, just a taste of the final absolute resurrection when body and soul will be joined to Jesus Christ forever and ever in glory.
praise be his name. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray that there would be nobody here this morning, no one here that would turn away from Jesus Christ, that as he is the resurrection and life, that there is no person here that will turn their nose up at Jesus and continue in death. O oh Lord, you are the only hope for life the only hope for the favor of God, the only hope that we could be conformed to God, the only hope that one day we will not be judged and cast into the darkness forever, but we will be raised in new bodies, perfected, never to grow old, never to be sick again, never to be weak again, have new glory and power that we cannot imagine reigning with Christ forever in a renewed universe. Oh, Lord, you've done this all for us. May there not be one person, Lord, who will neglect the resurrection and the life. Grant faith. Grant that all here will trust in Jesus Christ and they will know your favor and begin to know your love as they manifest that love to others and will have the hope of eternal life and resurrection forever. Oh, Lord, bless us, for we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.